As I indicated earlier, our sermon scripture will be a little bit different than what you see in your bulletin. Um, not altogether different, but a little bit different. We'll not be in uh, the Old Testament today at all, but merely uh, or only, I should say, in Ephesians chapter 1. And in just a moment, I'll, I'll read verses 15 to 23. Uh, you can find Ephesians chapter 1 on page 1133 of your pew Bible if you happen to be following along with us. Uh, after I stepped back down uh, after the, uh, my greeting and prayer, it occurred to me that I had failed to say concerning our screens that you still have an opportunity to uh, give to that project. Uh, it's, it's not like the church is, relishes paying out about $10,000 from our bank account. We're not really in a position to do that. We, we have had generous donors, but we also think it's better that more of us invest in the ministry than fewer. And so we want to give you that opportunity to give to that uh, cause, uh, and we'll keep that open until May the 7th. That's the first Sunday in May, okay? Uh, Ephesians chapter 1, starting with verse 15. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places or heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the, in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. The word of the Lord. Let's, uh, let's pray together. God, our Father, we thank you for these words of yours, encouraging, challenging, revealing, true and full of life. They're also about us, your church, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that you have given us such a part in your ministry, in your gospel, in your redemption, in your love. We thank you, Lord, for the opportunities that we have to hear from you through preachers who have studied your word believed your word, and now are going to preach your word. We pray for Pastor Yuri as he comes, give him the words to speak and our, ours the, the ears to listen. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Pastor Mark. Let's pray together. Lord God, You've made it so clear to me this week that I have nothing to offer. No cleverness, no wit, no words of my own. You directed me to e erase the first 15 minutes of what I had written because it's all, it was all me and not your word. So Lord, I pray that you would move with power by your spirit, through your words, coming out of a mere man. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. 
Well, as Pastor Mark uh, mentioned, we won't be looking this morning at 2 Kings chapter 6. Um, I just uh, didn't quite get there in my uh, sermon preparation this morning, which doesn't mean that I didn't write a lot of words. <laughs> what it means is that if I did, we'd be here for a couple hours. So um, you probably prefer not to do that. But as I'll say later on, I would challenge you um, on your own time uh, to, to look at the passage that I've indicated in the bulletin in chapter 6 of 2 Kings, because it does relate quite, uh, quite a bit to, to what we'll be talking about this morning. If you look in your bulletin, as Pastor Mark mentioned, also um, you'll see that there's the central truth of today's message, which is to see clearly and to act effectively, we must look to Jesus, the source of all hope, meaning, and power. And you'll see underneath that central truth that there are a few phrases from a couple of other translations of the passage that we're studying this morning that Mark just read for us. So it could be helpful to keep that bulletin close by as well as your Bible open. And if you don't have your Bible open, I would encourage you to have the first chapter of Ephesians in front of you. In the Pew Bibles in front of you, in the rack in front of you, it's found on page 1133, page 1133 in the Pew Bibles. Eventually, I'd like to focus this morning on the last two verses of the passage that Pastor Mark just read for us this morning, verses 22 and 23, which read, And God placed all things under his feet, that is, Jesus' feet, and appointed him, Jesus, to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Now, that's kind of a, I was going to say a mouthful, but it's a brainful, really. It's really not an easy thing to take in all at once, those last two verses. So before we can really understand what Paul is saying in that last sentence, we have to look at the verses that lead up to it, to Paul's prayer for the church, since these last two verses of the chapter flow very naturally from that prayer. Now, this prayer is apparently a prayer which he prays regularly, persistently, since he says he keeps asking God for it. Now, we can summarize the prayer this way. It is a prayer for knowledge. Look at the end of verse 17. He's praying his prayer so that you may know him better. Now, since the prayer is to know him, the knowledge that Paul is praying for isn't, first of all, the kind of knowledge that involves theories or, or facts. No, this knowledge is the knowledge of a person. It is knowing Christ. In fact, everything else in his prayer hinges on the depth of this knowledge. Now, this is brought out most clearly in the New American Standard Version, which is why I asked Naveen to pray to print this phrase from verse 17 for you in your bulletin. So if you look there, it, you, it's clear that it is in the knowledge of Christ that the spirit of wisdom and of revelation is given. He prays that God would give them a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, of Jesus. In other words, the better you know Christ, the more wisdom you will attain. The better you know Christ, the more will be revealed, will be unveiled before your eyes. That's what the Greek word means here. Everything in this prayer, everything that follows this, hinges on knowing Jesus. When we see that, we see that verse 18 is, is not a new set of prayer items. 
but they all proceed from this knowledge of Jesus. Now, again, if you have an ESV translation in front of you, this is a little clearer because you can see that verse 18 isn't a new sentence. Paul is building on this idea of revelation in the knowledge of Christ. He prays that knowing Christ would result in illumination, that in knowing Christ, the eyes of your heart would be enlightened. The eyes of your heart would be enlightened. Now, this is an inspiring image. Wow, the eyes of my heart being enlightened. But if we're not careful, we can miss, we can be so inspired by this image that we miss what it means. What does it mean to have the eyes of your heart enlightened? Well, in the Bible, your heart is the core of who you are. Your heart is your will, essentially. So if the eyes of your heart are enlightened, it means that your will is well informed. It means that you have a clear and accurate understanding of God and his world. It means that you know how you should orient or position yourself towards God and in the world. And from that vantage point, you can know exactly what to do in any given moment. Now this evening, Michelle and I will probably watch a show that we like called The Weekend Wrap. In The Weekend Wrap, all 10 of the soccer games that take place each weekend in the English Premier League are analyzed by a host, two former soccer players, and a former referee. Inevitably, there are calls made by the referees that fans and players are absolutely crazy about. And what the referee on the show always comments on is the great lengths to which the referees in the games go to so that they make sure that they will have the proper vantage point to be able to see the play clearly and to act with authority based on their unique position to make well-informed decisions. That's a little like what Paul is talking about. When we know Christ deeply, know him by personal experience, know him through his word, we have the proper vantage point to be able to see clearly. And seeing clearly, we are able to act effectively. From the knowledge of Christ, Paul tells us in verses 18 and 19, that three other types of knowledge flow. From the knowledge of Christ, three other types of knowledge flow. Now, it's important to note that the word translated as know in verse 18 is different in Greek from the word know that we saw in verse 17. That knowledge in verse 17, as I said, was knowledge of someone or something by personal experience. But the word we have in verse 18 is a little, is a different word. It's a word that goes well with the idea of illumination because it is the kind of knowledge that you would associate with school. It has to do with facts and ideas, the kind of knowledge that you can summarize in a few short words and memorize. This knowledge is being aware of a concept of perceiving a truth. This knowing is considering something that is true and being able to see how it fits together with other things that are true. It's the knowing you use when you say, I know that 2 plus 2 equals 4. Or what it means that E equals MC squared. Or that every action has an equal and opposite reaction. It's knowing not just the truths that you hold to be self-evident, but also the ones that have been taught to you the ones that you have struggled to learn, that you've wrestled with. The goal for this kind of knowing is to understand a fact or a concept so well, so thoroughly, so backwards and forwards that it is woven into the very fabric of your life so that it informs your reasoning and your words and your actions without you even realizing it. Coupled with the security of knowing Christ 
in a deep way, a personal way, these three things that we can perceive and consider and then completely absorb are things that transform us, that enable us to walk with confidence and with purpose. If we know Christ and in knowing Christ know these things, we have no fear of stumbling. So first, look at verse 18. We see there is the knowledge of our hope. He prays that we would have the knowledge of our hope, but also see that it is Christ himself who has called us to that hope. It is Christ himself who generates that hope. It is Christ who secures that hope. It is Christ who keeps us, guards us. Our hope is Jesus living in us. Our hope is the knowledge that we live in Jesus now. Our certainty, and we can use that word because in biblical terms, certainty is really what hope is. Our certainty is that we will live with him for all eternity. Do you know that hope? Do you know that certainty? Do you know Jesus? Well, knowing Christ means becoming aware of this hope. It means meditating on this hope. It means digesting this hope. The better we know him, the more hope we will have. And the less we'll find ourselves to be discouraged. Well, second, there is the knowledge of what he calls our glorious inheritance. That's also in verse 18. Our glorious inheritance. And the picture he gives us as a shorthand for that is one of riches. Riches. This is no less than understanding the meaning of life. We see the word riches and inheritance, and it doesn't quite compute, but what he's talking about really is the radical realization of everything that makes life worth living. And that, that is ours. Knowing Christ then means that we know the secret of being content in every situation, as Paul says somewhere else. Because healthy or sick, wealthy or poor, hungry or full, we are constantly drawing on the infinite reserve that is Jesus Christ. Third, and this is what Paul expands on the most here, starting in verse 19. It's also what inspires him to write the final two verses of this chapter that we're going to get to in just a minute. The third thing that flows from the knowledge of Christ is the knowledge of the power that is available to us in Christ. The power that is available to us in Christ. So again, to the extent that we know Christ, the eyes of our hearts are enlightened. So that we know our hope, we know our inheritance, and we know his power. Or to go back to our metaphor of the soccer referee, knowing Christ gives the proper vantage point so that we can think and speak and act with authority. We know who we are. We know what we're here for. And we know that what we do is going to make a difference and that we're going to be backed up. But what does this power actually mean for us? This power that Paul talks about here in verse 19. Is this a power that I have in myself? Can I just walk around, say, casting out demons and healing people like Jesus and the apostles did? And if I can't, does that mean that I'm not living in the power of the Spirit? Does that mean that I may not know Christ as I should? 
There can be a lot of confusion about this. And I'm afraid that the choice of wording in the NIV doesn't exactly help us with this when it says in verse 19, his incomparably great power for us who believe. It's not that the NIV has translated it wrongly. It has more to do with what we assume the phrase for us means. Often when we say something is for us, it means that something has been given to us. It's for us. We acquire ownership of it. It's ours. And because it's ours, we can do what we want with it. In a very short time, as Pastor Mark said, we'll receive delivery of a couple of brand spanking new TV screens for our sanctuary. When they come, we'll all be excited because this big package, these things that represent all kinds of exciting possibilities will have arrived. Hooray, we'll say, this package is for us. Let's unbox it, install it, and start playing with it. But that's not what the Greek word that we have translated as for actually means. The power that is for us who believe is not a power that we own. And it most certainly is not something which we can dispose of in whatever way we like. And of course, even in English, there are many ways of understanding how something can be for us. For instance, someone might run to the store for us. Or when we go to the dentist, the hygienist usually flosses our teeth for us. Or a musician might play a tune for us. Or a parent might pray for us. Or someone on the sidelines might root for us. These are all different ways of using this phrase in English. So the NIV's translation, power for us who believe, is not wrong, simply because we misinterpret how the word for is used. And the NIV certainly sounds more natural in English, than the translations like the ESV that you see in the bulletin that talks about God's power toward us who believe, which is kind of a strange sentence, a little bit harder to understand, but it's actually much more precise. Because God's power for us is more like that musician who plays for us, or our parents who pray for us, or even the fan who screams and shouts for us. In other words, God's power for us is power directed towards us. It is something we can receive. It is something that affects us. It is something that makes a real difference to us. But it is not something that we own. It is not something that we can hold on to or manipulate or deploy. Again, it's a little like our soccer referee. She has no power of her own. The power that she has is the power that the Premier League confers on her or extends toward her. For those 90 minutes that she is on the pitch, she is the boss. She has complete authority to affect the game in massive ways. And even if the ref makes a mistake on the pitch and the Premier League later on acknowledges it, the result still stands. She is not superhuman. She does not command the player's respect by the force of her will or brute strength. And if the players all decided to ignore her, of course they could. But to ignore the referee's power means to put yourself outside of the authority structure of the league, to embrace chaos, and to disqualify the whole game. The results wouldn't count and the players would likely be suspended. In the same way, God's power that is for us, the power that God extends toward us, is power that should give us a humble confidence. We remain humble because we know that it's God's power, not ours, and that we walk within his authority structure. 
but we can be confident because his power is greater than anything we can imagine. His power towards us is incomparably great, the NIV says. Other translations say his power is so great that it is surpassing, exceeding, immeasurable, incredible, boundless, unlimited. His power toward us is that very power, Paul says in verse 20. That very power that raised Jesus from the dead. The very power through which he was brought back into heaven and which sat him down to rule the universe at the right hand of the Father. This this is power that infinitely eclipses all other power. It's power that makes an atomic bomb look like a flash in the pan. Comparing his power to anything else is like comparing the mass and energy of a billion galaxies to a hamster working out his frustrations on a squeaky wheel. All this power is directed toward us. But it doesn't make us superhuman. No. Still, it should provoke awe. It ought to instill wonder. And if we know Christ and through our knowledge of him know the hope to which he has called us, know the riches we have in him, his power toward us ought to inspire supreme confidence in him and in his purposes for the church. I'm going to say that again more emphatically and break it down more clearly because I do not want you to miss it. Jesus' power toward us ought to inspire supreme confidence. And I'm going to boldly take that even farther since Paul himself does. Jesus' power toward us ought to inspire supreme confidence in his purposes, not just for you and for me, but for the church. Supreme confidence for Bethesda Church. Supreme confidence for all true churches around the world. How can I say that? When what we see around us is science and technology as the shiny new gods. Beautiful old church buildings completely falling apart, sold to make condos. Pastors shamed by scandals. People leaving in droves. Not to mention, more broadly, spiking levels of anxiety and suicide or algorithms developing beyond our ability to understand them or control them even. Inflation, pandemics, wars and rumors of wars between so-called superpowers. Doesn't it seem like the church has had its day? Aren't those other things obviously more powerful, more relevant? All things, Paul says, are under Jesus' feet. All rule, all authority, all power, all dominion are far below him. And all this, his rule over all things, is for all time. Not only for this age, the age we live in, but also for the one to come. But there's more. Jesus fills everything in every way. Or as the ESV says, Jesus fills all in all. And more than that, this Jesus is the head of the church. 
More even than that, God gave Jesus as head over all things to the church. Much more even than that, and I wouldn't dare say it if the Bible didn't say it, the church is the fullness of him, Jesus, who fills all in all. Well, let's unpack these things, because obviously I'm getting excited, but they're not easy to understand. And unless we know how they relate to us, they remain just some nice words that the nice man up here is saying. Look at verse 22. God placed all things under his feet, under Jesus' feet. At the very least, this is a claim that Jesus actually ascended into heaven and that he's sitting at the right hand of God as our kids are learning about this morning it means that at the most basic level that physically speaking all things are literally under his feet this might seem trivial to us even simple-minded because we're convinced that we're past all that nonsense We're the real superheroes. We're the conquerors of mountains, the explorers of outer space. The Soviet leaders used to mock Christians by putting words into the mouth of the first man in space as he floated out into orbit and was supposedly said that God's nowhere to be seen. Although apparently he didn't actually say that. Khrushchev just said he did. We're not communists. Most of us are not even atheists. But that basic fear that the physical ascension of Jesus is kind of ludicrous has managed to lodge in our brains. Many of us will have seen that viral video of some church's ill-conceived dramatic production of Jesus' ascension. There he is rising but frantic and helpless as he succumbs to physics, his harness turning him and exposing his bare back to the audience. There's probably no more potent image of our deepest fears about what the nature of the relationship between Jesus and his church actually is. That he's powerless and that we are slowly spinning out of control. Somewhere in the back of our minds, we all worry about this very crucial point. If Jesus is still fully God and fully human, where did his physical body go? Or to put it in the terms of our verse, does Jesus actually have feet? If not, how can we say that anything is under them? Since this is so crucial and has such potential for people to make fun of it, I wanted to be sure that I was well informed, so I turned to one of our most trusted evangelical, broadly speaking, systematic theologies to explain it. Millard Erickson writes this, Heaven is not merely upward from the earth, and it also seems likely that the difference between earth and heaven is not merely geographical. It's not just a matter of place. God is in a different dimension of reality. And the transition from here to there requires not merely a change of place, but of state. Jesus is the God-man. There is a continuing incarnation. That means Jesus still has a body. But his is a perfected humanity. A perfected humanity of the type which we will have after our resurrection. 
Just as our bodies will have many of their limitations removed, so it has been with the perfect, glorified humanity of Jesus. Or to put it in crass terms, does Jesus have feet? Yes. But since his resurrection, it's entirely up to him where and when you might be able to see them. I don't doubt that this will sound crazy to some of you. But it's supported by the fact that after his resurrection, Jesus had a body, but that body could do things that our bodies can't, at least not yet. So when Paul says that God has placed all things under the feet of Jesus, he's not just being poetic. He is affirming a historical fact. Jesus ascended. He went up into heaven, as Luke tells us at the end of his gospel. He disappeared behind a cloud, and he will come back down in the same way he went up, as Luke quoted the angels at the beginning of Acts, who told those disciples to stop staring up into the sky, because he's going to come back. Did Jesus need to go up to heaven? Maybe not. We don't know. But even if he didn't, his ascension demonstrated his mastery over the physical universe in a way that that silly video proves is not so easy. We do not like looking ridiculous. So we tend to hedge about verses like these. Maybe not everything is under his feet. And, and maybe his being head over the church is more symbolic than real. I mean, maybe he's more of a figurehead. I mean, would any actual head allow the body that it's attached to to do such shameful things as the church has done over the last two millennia? Or maybe he is the head of the church, but his power is limited in the world. You might think that the translation of the second half of this verse in our Pew Bibles is implying this. Since it says that he is head over everything for the church, which you could read as hinting that he's not head over everything that is, but only those things that are related to church life. Maybe activities and priorities outside the church, things like people's private lives and world events, maybe those things kind of hamper Jesus' ability to, to build his church. Well, that can't be true if you take the first half of the verse into account. If, verse 22, God placed all things under his feet, and his power, as we saw earlier, is infinite, then obviously nothing is out of his control. And if you look at your bulletin, you'll see a more literal translation of the phrase. God gave him, as head over all things, to the church. God gave Jesus, as head over all things, to the church. Yes, Jesus is the head of the church, his body. He is also head over all things. And Paul says that it is as head over all things that he has been given to the church. You can see that Paul is not allowing for any limitation on Jesus' power. That is the exact opposite of his point, in fact. Jesus' power is unlimited, unfathomable, and unstoppable. And that is the power that drives the church.
This is an absolutely staggering reality. It means that none of the things that we typically sit and worry and grumble about from the pew has any relevance to the ultimate success of Jesus' mission in the world. What do we worry about most? That people aren't coming, right? So we busy our minds with how we feel when we go to church. Now, if I'm not enjoying church, how on earth am I supposed to convince other people to come and sit through it? So we preoccupy ourselves with things like musical style, or we question the preacher's presentation, or we criticize when the service is too long or too stuffy or not welcoming enough or not easy enough to follow. We sometimes even wonder whether worship services are worth having at all, or if they're just a relic of the past, indulging our nostalgia when what we really ought to be doing is going out and being the hands and feet of Jesus, right? I mean, doesn't Paul say right here that we are the fullness of him who fills everything in every way? What does singing sentimental songs and listening to sleepy sermons have to do with that? Shouldn't we just get out there and be Jesus to people? Can't we do that out on the golf course on a Sunday morning? And hey, why are we limiting the church to Sunday morning anyway? Who are we to put limits on God? I can be the church in Costco, or at yoga class, or at work, or dropping my kids off at daycare, or finally grabbing that coffee with a friend I never get to see. If Jesus really fills everything in every way, I can cram him in between all the other stuff I've got going on. And then maybe one or two Sundays a month, I can practice some self-care and just have some me time. Wow, wouldn't that be nice? See how easy it is? See how easy it is to take your eyes off of Jesus and twist the Bible to make it say what you want it to say. See how easy it is to make yourself less ridiculous in the eyes of the world, less ridiculous in the light of your own anxieties and hang-ups. When we start indulging that way of thinking, we prove the difficulty of understanding Bible words like fullness and hope and riches and power. Generally speaking, we interpret those words in ways that mostly benefit us. Power is anything that puts us first and on top. Riches is a life of not luxury, but comfort. Hope is the prospect of anything that appeals to us. Fullness is kind of a combination of all of those things. It's the best life we can imagine for ourselves in the here and now. Usually a life where we're considered important, where we have material abundance and freedom from sickness and other cares. Oh, and as much time as we want to pursue our passions. But that's not what Paul is talking about when he talks about fullness. Because fullness is not some generic word. It's not a symbol, a catch-all for all your worldly dreams. It seems obvious to get fullness, you need, first of all, a container. And what else? Something to put in it, right? Well, the two containers that Paul mentions, what are they? The church and, well, everything else, if he fills all in all. Whatever that second one means, it's clear that Paul is not primarily talking about individuals like me and you. Now, the container, the container is important. You can't have the idea of fullness if you have nothing to fill. But even more important than the container is what you fill it with. What fills these containers? Well, we should actually ask, rather, who fills those containers? Because obviously, in the picture of fullness that Paul is painting for us, Jesus fills them. Nothing but Jesus Stuff doesn't fill it. Status doesn't fill it. Perfect health 
or dreams of having your best life now doesn't provide the kind of fullness that Paul is talking about. Only Jesus. The church is the fullness of Jesus. The church is filled with Jesus. And the individual members are only part of the church to the extent that they are full of Jesus. As Paul says elsewhere, all that other stuff he counts as worse than garbage. So the church that is full of those other things, that is the church that is consumed with how they look in the eyes of the world, whether they have the power as the world defines it, whether they have riches as the world defines them, whether they seem to have a hope in this world because they attract the greatest numbers or have the programs that address what the world considers most important, this church may be full of something, but it is certainly not full of Christ. I'll put it even more bluntly, in case you missed my meaning. Any church or any preacher who preaches that the abundant life is one defined by health, wealth, and leisure is full of manure. And I can say it that plainly, even that rudely, with confidence, because that's Paul's word for it, not mine. As I said earlier, Jesus has a physical body that now interacts with physics in ways that we can't understand. But of course, Jesus also has a spiritual body. The church is the body of Christ. We are the body of Christ. The church is the fullness of Christ. We are that fullness. Let that sink in. We are the fullness of Christ. But to know what that means, you have to know Christ. To be a part of the church means devoting yourself completely to knowing him. As I said before, knowing Jesus is the key to understanding this passage. To be the fullness of Christ in the world means at least that we resemble him and his priorities, his holiness, his compassion, his self-sacrifice. To be full of him means that we strive to be like him. But we have to be careful there because it means even more than that in the light of what we have been studying this morning. Because we can't be holy like Jesus, compassionate like Jesus, self-sacrificing like Jesus, apart from him doing it for us. So to be the fullness of Christ means to trust him to make us more and more like him. It means to trust him to transform us, to transform Bethesda Church. It means that we use his methods, regardless of whether we or the world think that they make sense. To be the church, to be full of Christ, means looking to Jesus to see clearly and to act effectively. We'll know that we're doing that when we hold everything that this world has to offer loosely, being willing to live in poverty because we are dazzled, awestruck by the riches of the glorious inheritance 
that we have obtained in Christ. We'll know that we're looking to Jesus when the overwhelming forces of the world, the giants in the land that Mark talked about last week, shrink in comparison to him. And we joyfully suffer contempt because we're confident in his power. We will know that we are looking to Jesus when we can hold on to hope, when we recognize that it is he who has called us, he who keeps us, he who fills all in all through us. Which is sobering. As I said earlier, your homework for this week is to read the passage from 2 Kings 6. Just for your encouragement and inspiration, but also to see just one more glorious example of what this clear-sightedness can look like and did look like at one point in time. And it will always look different in every generation. Let's pray together. We are nothing apart from you. Mere jars of clay. But we ask that you would fill us. Our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Our benediction for today is found in the book of Philippians, Paul's letter to the church at Philippi, in chapter 3. He writes, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, more literally, manure, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, that I may know him and know the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Amen and amen. Go in God's grace this week.